Now, we're going to cover verses 1 through 20 a little bit, but I'm just going to read verses 1 through 8 to start with. Then we'll reread verses 9 through 20 when we get to those. So Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, Paul says, Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision, much in every way? To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say, that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Now, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. If you remember, Paul knew that what he had just written in verse chapters 1 and 2 uh, would anger some Jews and confuse some others. He also knew that mankind being the way it is and all, was always wanting to approve themselves would try to condemn God in the process. You'll notice he deals with questions that he knows are going to crop up from people, as we're going to deal with some of these questions. We dealt with one last week. What's the advantage of being a Jew then? If God saves everybody, Jew and Gentile, what's the advantage of being a Jew? We're going to touch on that again to remind you, but we dealt with that last week. We're going to deal with some other questions that crop up. Well, well, and if God's glorified by my sin, why, why, is, he, why is he condemning me? You know, and we're going to deal with some of these questions. But before we do, I want to take us a little bit to kind of warn you a little bit. I don't know if you've noticed it in this world we live in, but there's always people asking questions like that of God. I had someone contact me recently through the email, and their question was, um, well, if God knows everything, and God knows that most of the people that are born are going to go to hell, why would he allow them to be born if he knows that they're going to go to hell? And my response to them was short and simple, but I warned them in my response, saying, first off, we got to deal with what the scripture says, first of all. And there's aspects of why God does things. We have to be honest and say, he's God and we're not. And we need to be okay with that. But what I really dealt with was that attitude that wants to look for a way to make God look bad and us look better. By the way, Job even did it. Go with me to the book of Job, chapter 40. As you know, as what's gone on in Job's life began to happen and build up, he started asking questions. He looked real good in chapters 1 and chapters 2. Naked I came into the world, naked I'll return, and he praised the Lord. But over time, he started to grumble a little bit. He started to say things like, I wish I could have a face-to-face -face with God and ask him a few questions. By the way, have you ever heard anybody say that? When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God a few things. You ever, you ever heard people say that? Let me say something to you. No, you won't. Because everyone that has met God face to face that we have recorded said, you know what? I got no more questions. And in Job chapter 40, we're already two chapters into God coming and, and speaking to Job. But look at what it says in verses 1 through 8. The Lord said to Job, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I'm of a, a small account. What shall I answer you? 
I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? You're going to notice as we move on in chapter 3 and following of Romans, Paul, as he's dealing with some deep theology about God and his plan of salvation, is going to have to, in his mind, deal with questions that are going to erupt that he knows that fallen humanity is going to try to take what he says and twist it to make themselves feel better. And I just simply say to you, be careful. God doesn't mind when we ask questions. He knows our hearts anyway. But be careful of thinking that you're going to find some loophole that makes God look bad and you look good. One day you're going to see him face to face. And I think you don't want to have to respond the way a lot of people that had questions eventually did. So last week we saw Paul's answer to the question, if anyone can be saved, what's the advantage of being a Jew? What was his answer? Do you remember? Much in every way. We dealt with the fact that but with their advantage comes responsibility and increased accountability. And we dealt with all of that last time, that they were given the law and they were given the covenants and the glory. And they had, they had so much more shown to them. But with that came a lot more accountability and responsibility. So Paul now in our section, as we pick up, deals with another question. And the question that he's dealing with is this. If, so if God makes promises to Israel, but not all Israel believed in order to receive them, does this take away from some of God's glory. There are some that try to teach that even though the Bible says Jesus died for the whole world, they say Jesus only really died for the people that are going to be saved because if he died for everybody and there are people that aren't saved, then his death wasn't efficacious and they use all these big words. No, the Bible says Jesus died for the whole world. That doesn't mean that everybody's going to be saved. The Bible also says that each one is responsible for how they respond and each one will give an account of himself to God. But there are those who try to say, or as Paul was dealing with here, so God made promises to Israel. Remember, that was the reason why the Jews were surprised that Paul had just said some Jews aren't going to heaven, even though God made all these promises to the Jews. So their question was, if God made promises to Israel, but not all Israel believes in order to receive them, does this take away from some of God's glory? By the way, uh, look at verse 2, or verse 3. It says, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? What's his answer? By no means. You're going to see that answer a few times tonight. By no means. Paul goes on to actually say that the Jews' unfaithfulness would actually rather further demonstrate God's glory and His holiness when He judges them. And he quotes from Psalm 51. Look at the very next verse. He's just said in verse 4, By no means, let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. In other words, God, they're saying, well, if God made promises to everybody and not everybody believes, therefore their unbelief takes away some of God's glory. No, actually, Paul says it's the opposite. Their unbelief actually glorifies God more. You know why? Because God had said they would. Go to Psalm 51. Let's go back and look at what David wrote. Remember, this is a psalm he wrote after sinning with Bathsheba. In Psalm 51, look at verses 1 through 4.
Psalm 51, verse 1, David writes, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. This is the part that Paul's quoting from here in Romans chapter 3, uh, verse Four. In other words, what Paul's saying is this. Man's sin does not take away from the glory of God. It actually demonstrates the glory of God even more. Actually, have you ever noticed that when humans came into the presence of God, not only did they stop asking their questions, they all of a sudden realized His holiness and their sinfulness? You ever notice that Isaiah was the same way when he was taken into the presence of God in Isaiah 6 and he saw God on His throne what is his immediate reaction? He said, woe unto me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And I've seen the Lord of glory. Many others would say, I'm going to die. Uh, Peter, when he started to realize more of who Jesus was, says, get away from me. Lord, I'm a sinful man. Actually, our sinfulness reveals more and more of God's glory. I've been trying to think of a way to illustrate this, and the best way I can come up with is, yeah, I'm not a good-looking guy. But when you put me next to a really good-looking guy, my ugliness makes his good-looking look even more. You know what I'm saying? It's that kind of a deal. It's just God is glorified. And when you put him next to anything in comparison, there is no comparison. And his, his glory is actually revealed even more through man's sin. Now, as I've said, God is so holy that everything in comparison to him displays his glory even more, especially sinful man. So then Paul deals with another question that's going to come out of that then. So, if my sin displays God's glory, why am I being judged for it? Since God is, is good's going to come out of it, why not sin more to show more of God's glory in comparison? That's what he deals with next. So, look at verse 5. So, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God... What shall we say, that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? And then he says, I'm speaking in a human way. That's how humans would look at it. And then he, there's that word again. What does he say? By no means. He says, for then how could God judge the, the world? And then he, go, they, he goes on, and then again, verse 7, But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, he says their condemnation is just. So the question again is, if my sin actually reveals more of God's glory, why don't I sin more so God can get more glory? Isn't that crazy? And again, he says no means. And then he says this, if, if this is the response to our sin... If, if, if this response to our sin and God's holiness were correct, how could God judge the world? If what you're saying is true, that God gets more glory the more man sin, and then let's just sin more so God could get more glory, how could God ever judge the world? There'd be moral chaos, wouldn't there be? Everybody says, look, everything I do that's bad just makes God look better. Let's just keep doing more and more bad. Oh, by the way, have you noticed that that's been mankind's mindset all along? We don't want laws. We don't want rules. We want to defund the police. We want to do all this kind of stuff. 
We don't want judgment. Whatever is right for you is right for you. But that ironic thing to me in this world that we live in, where everybody's saying there's no absolute truth and you can be whatever you want to be and whatever sex you want to be and all these kind of things and just do what's right to you. Have you noticed that those same people are screaming out for justice? So-and-so did this when they were in college. They shouldn't be a, a lawmaker. And someone did this. And I think, it's, isn't that amazing, the, the balance? We don't want police but we sure want these people to pay for what they've done. Yes? If you've broken one, you've broken them all. It's right. So it's, it's not like you're sinning anymore. It, you know what? That's a really good point. James chapter 2, verse 10 says, If I'm able to keep the whole law, yet stumble at just one point, I'm guilty as if I broke it all. So sinning more isn't going to make it worse. All it's going to do for me is make my punishment in hell longer. And, and Well, they're all going to be forever. But it's going to make it worse for those who don't receive Christ. That's a great point. Great point, Bill. Now, sinful man, yeah, he actually said, be holy. He didn't say, go sin more so I can get more glory. He reveals his glory. It is for us to be humble before that so that we would strive to be in his image and walk in his image. Yep. Well, that, I'm glad you're bringing this point up, Sheila. Here, let, let me ask you this question. So if man's attitude is, so if my sin brings God glory, why don't I just sin more so he can get more glory? What is it really saying about us? I want to live for myself, not for what he wants. I'll pretend that it's for you. By the way, there's a lot of people nowadays saying, well, the Lord said I could do this. And the Bible says it's sin. Go ahead, Michael. Wouldn't he only be glorified if we came to the realization of our sin? Well, actually, though, no, because he's going to, we'll get to that. We're going to get into it in chapter 9. When we get to chapter 9, which is a really deep chapter, when we get to chapter 9, he even, Paul, asked this question, what if God chose some people to go to hell? And created them for that purpose just to display his glory and his wrath towards sin. So even he's not only glorified when people repent. He's definitely glorified when that happens. But he's glorified. He's glorified no matter what. He's going to be glorified in the judgment of sin. He's going to be glorified in people repenting. He's going to get his glory. And by the way, folks, let me just say that to you as well. He's going to get his glory. Isaiah chapter 48, verse 11, God says this. I will not share my glory with anyone. That's why he actually tells the nation of Israel. He says in Malachi chapter 3, he says, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you or Israel aren't destroyed. The reason Israel still exists is not because they're so good. It's because God made a promise. And for his glory, he's going to keep his promise to the, his forefathers and the nation, as he said, that they would be a continual people and they'd never disappear before him. And all the promises that he made for them are going to be fulfilled. And if he didn't keep his promises to them, he'd lose his glory. And the only reason Israel still exists and haven't been wiped off the face of the earth is because God cares about his glory. Oh, and by the way, whenever you try to steal God's glory, you don't want to do that. All sin is against who? It's against God. It's against God. Psalm 51, we just saw it in verse 4. David sinned against Uriah. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against a whole lot of people. He sinned against Joab, putting him in that spot to have him put him to death when Joab knew he didn't do anything. But David knew the depth of his sin. It all ultimately really is against God. Against you and you only have I sinned. Now, Paul also deals with what some people were accusing Christians of teaching. That if salvation is by grace, then people should and can sin more to get more grace. Go back to Romans chapter 3. Look again at verse 7. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, 
Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? And I love how he responds to him. He says, their condemnation is just. There was a movement in Christianity, early Christianity, and there still is some now, where Christians would teach that since we're saved by God's grace and anything we do, and once we're saved, we're sealed, which the Bible says you are. If he gives you his spirit, he seals you and you're guaranteed eternity. Well, then I can do whatever I want, and I'm still going to go to heaven. Go to Romans chapter 5. Go to Romans chapter 5. Look at verses 18 and then into chapter 6, verse 4. Paul says, therefore, as Romans chapter 5, verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, that's Adam, so by the one man's obedience, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. We'll deal with that in a little bit. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. There it is again. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. By the way, if there was a doctrine in the Bible that taught that if you as a saved Christian sinned to a certain amount, you could lose that salvation, there was Paul's opportunity to teach it. But he says, no, actually, people that are truly saved aren't going to think like that. People that are truly saved are going to have a mindset that says, I want to live for the glory of God, not for myself. Paul writes in the book of Galatians chapter 5, he actually says this. He says, don't use the freedom that you've been given because you are free to live however you want. Paul even says that a few times in the Bible. He says, all things are permissible for us who are in Christ. Not everything's lawful. You know, here's the whole thing. Don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. But there were people that were saying, you Christians are saying all you can do is to be saved is just believe in Jesus. And he, by his grace, gives you righteousness and gives it to you. So you can be sealed by God and saved and live however you want. And to be honest with you, if you're preaching the gospel and that question doesn't arise, I don't think you fully explain the gospel. That is the good news. It's not tied to how good you are after salvation. It's tied to God's gift and you receiving it by faith. But if you have, if you have, your mindset would not be, let me just do whatever I want because I'm free and God will forgive it and he'll get more glory as he gives, forgives me more. No, your mindset should, be, your mindset should be, I died to that. And those of you who are in Christ, who have the spirit of God within you, you know that when you sin, you don't like it. You know the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You know the grieving of the spirit that the Bible talks about. The breaking of fellowship. You don't lose your relationship, but it affects our relationship. That's why in 1 John chapter 1, he says, God is lightning in him. There's no darkness at all. And him who walks in darkness and says that he has fellowship with the Father lies. The truth's not in him. But even though there's this wrestling match between our flesh and our spirit, we should be not living for the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so Paul was saying, there are people out there that are slanderously saying that we're out there teaching, do whatever you want. You're forgiven. And he says their condemnation 
his job. Years ago, I was teaching on grace for a whole week at a church. About the second or third night of the week, the pastor calls me to the side after the service, and he said, look, I know what you're teaching is true, but you can't tell them because they'll become lazy. They'll abuse it. Yes, I know we're forgiven. Yes, I know we're free. Yes, I know that it's all by him and none by us. But I am, this is what he told me. He goes, I'm of the mindset that I need to make them feel guilty and shameful and controlled. That way we'll get good workers. I actually had a church that I spoke at regularly. I'm not going to tell you what part of the state, but it's in this state. I spoke at regularly and the pastor does not invite me back anymore because I actually said one time in a service that if you're on a committee and God's not told you to be on it, you can quit tonight. And he was so upset because everybody's going to quit. Everybody's going to know I'm not going to have workers. And he decided that I would never preach there again. We are free to live in Christ according to what he has for each of us. And we're to run the race marked out for us. And we're to live our lives under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. But even though man's flesh may take that and run with it, Paul says those of us who truly have his spirit, we don't think that way. Don't you realize that you've been baptized into Christ, you've been baptized into his death. And when you've been baptized into his death, sin doesn't have any power over him anymore. In the same way, now because he lives within us, sin doesn't have any power over us. If we still sin, and many of us still do, because if you say you don't, you're lying. But when we choose to sin as a Christian, the Bible says we're just choosing to obey the flesh. We choose whom we're going to serve. We'll get to that in chapter 6 of Romans. But Paul knew that he was saying that salvation was for everyone, even though God made promises to the nation of Israel, salvation's always been to the Jew and Gentile, and they had a tremendous advantage, but also with that advantage came responsibility and a stricter judgment. But he also knew that people were going to say, well, what's the point of having being a Jew? He knew that people were going to say, well, then if I, why don't I just go on sinning if God gets glory through my sin and all this? And Paul says, listen, if you have an attitude that is looking for how can I make myself feel better and therefore accuse God in the same process? Be real careful. He says their condemnation is just. They don't get it. And they're going to be judged by God. And he's correct in condemning them. I'm just going to say to you, don't be one of those people. Don't be one of those people. Repent. Are there things that God does that we don't understand? And there always will be. There always will be. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. The things revealed belong to us and our children. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 2, It's the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's to His glory to hide stuff. You know why? I want a God that knows stuff I don't know. If I can fully understand everything God does and everything God's thinking and how God's going to work, that makes me God. And I hope you know by now, I'm not that impressive. I'm not that smart. And if God were only as good as Jim Johnson, we'd be in trouble, Bill. Yeah, we'd be in trouble. I like the fact that God knows stuff that I don't know. And the Bible says he's good. We're going to talk about that. He's good. That if we trust him, even when he says no, or he says, I ain't going to tell you, or he says, wait, that's best. That's best. Let's go to chapter 3 now, verses 9 through 20. 
What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. No, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Does anybody notice in your Bibles that most of what I just read to you is quoted from somewhere else? Did you see that? And what we're going to do in the time that we have left is I'm going to take you back to these Old Testament passages that Paul's quoting from. He's actually quoting from quite a few. And we're going to look at the context of the passages that he was quoting from. And it's going to be very interesting, as you're going to see in the book of Romans, Paul's going to continue to do that. As he lays out the doctrine of the gospel, he's going to show how it's been in the Old Testament all along. Paul now continues his thoughts from chapter 1 and 2, dealing with the need of all people to be saved, both Jew and Gentile. He then quotes from, like I said, many Old Testament passages to show that God's word, God's law, has been saying this all along. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through this slowly because I want you to see it. Go with me to Psalm chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. And I'm going to ask you, once we're reading, to tell me, once I'm done reading it, don't yell out the answer until I'm done reading this, the passage, I want you to tell me what, what part Paul quotes in Romans chapter 3. Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become, cor become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. What's he, where's he quote, what parts of this passage is he quoting from in Romans 3? Verse 12. And? And verse also at the end of verse 10, if you notice. You see it? No one righteous, not one. And they've all turned aside. He's pulled two different passages, parts from this one passage. But listen real quick. Don't miss the context. Psalms was written by, this psalm was written by David. David was a what? Jew or Gentile? Jew. And even though the word is for everybody that would read it, who was it mainly for? For that it was given to the Jews. They had the oracles of God as we looked at last week. And what did God say through David to the Jews as the oracles of God? There's no one righteous, not even one. Yet what are the Jews, what were they thinking? I'm a Jew. I'm automatically in. I'm already in. But the scripture had clearly said there's no one righteous. Go to Psalm 50, uh, 51. Look at verses 1 through 3. 
Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. They see it yet? I tricked you on this one, I'm sorry. But I'm not sorry. It's just another passage that's showing even David acknowledged his own sin. He's not writing, there's no one righteous, but I'm the only one. He's saying, I'm a sinner too. Go to Psalm 5. Look at verses 4 through 9. For you're not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty, deceitful man. This is a tricky one. It's in verse 6. You see, you destroy those who speak lies. And he talks about how they use their tongue to deceive. All right. Go over again now with me to Psalm 140. Look at verse 3, verses 1 through 3. Psalm 140, verses 1 through 3. I was going to say, Jim, back mm -hmm. on that Psalm. Oh, that, did I not read all the way down to nine? Where did I stop? I'm sorry, my fault. That is supposed to go down to nine. I had nine in my notes. I thought I'd read to nine. Yeah, keep reading. You're right, Sheila. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me, for there's no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. There it is. They flatter with their tongue. That's where he's quoting from. Psalm 140, look at verses one through three. Deliver me, O Lord, from evil men. Preserve me from violent men who plan evil things in their heart and stir up wars continually. They make their tongue sharp as, as a serpent's, and under their lips is the venom of asps. Verse 13. Very good. Go to Psalm 10. Look at verses 1 through 7. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there's no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. 
Does anybody see where this one is? Verse 14. Very nice. Yep. Keep going. Go with me to Proverbs chapter 1. Okay, you're very good. No fear of God before his eyes. Where are you pulling that out of? I'm looking at it real quick here. Um, well, actually, his ways are always grievous. Their judgments are far above his sight. Yeah, so it's, it's in the context of it. Yeah, yep, there's no God in verse 4. Yep, very nice. Go to Proverbs chapter 1. Look at verses 8 through 16. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive, and like an whole like those who go down to the pit, we shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. 15. You got it. By the way, I'm going to keep doing this for a little bit, but do you all realize where this is all coming from? What book, for the most part, are we seeing this in besides Proverbs 1? We're seeing it where? Psalms. Wait a minute. I thought we thought Psalms was just a, a hymn book. We always thought Psalms was just a, a hymn book. I don't know if you know this or not, but if you've ever read the book of Hebrews, the Hebrew writer is quoting from Psalms most of the time as he talks about who Jesus is, and he's greater than this and greater than that, and today you've become my son, and I've become your father, and all these passages that talk about an enemy is going to be made a footstool for his feet, and David, I'm sorry, uh, Peter quotes from David and he quotes from Psalm in Acts chapter 3 and he talks about how you'll never let your Holy One see decay. Jesus himself, when he rose from the dead on that first day of the week, when he rose from the dead, met with the two men on the road to Emmaus and revealed himself and then they went running back to the upper room and Jesus appears in the upper room and he says this to all of his disciples, everything written about me in the law and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. In other words, there's still more prophecy to come. Folks, I don't know if you know this or not, but this book of Psalms actually talks about the last days and the wars that are going to happen. If you ever go to Psalm 83 and other places, there's a lot that's here. But one of the problems that we're experiencing as Christians, especially in this day and age, is most Christians only read the New Testament. And there's so much in the Old Testament. Well, Jim, I have a hard time understanding the Old Testament. Well, then you don't believe what Jesus promised. Jesus promised when the Holy Spirit comes to indwell us, He'll guide us into all the truth. He'll take from what is His and make it known to us. He'll bring to our remembrance everything that He said. All we're to do is put it in. All He asks us to do is to read it, to study it, treasure it, meditate it, hide it in our hearts. Folks, let me just tell you, it's time if you really believe that God would show you that He would give wisdom. Remember James 1 verse 5, anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. But don't doubt, believe that He will. Let me tell you something. One of the biggest things that's come out of this new book on Revelation that our ministry has just published, and by the way, praise the Lord, we only printed a thousand to start, and we have to order some more now. They've been going out. I've been mailing them out and sending them out. Churches are, are, are contacting us. It's been really amazing to see how many are going out. And the responses we've already had of people that have already read it and contacting us, they said, I understand the book of Revelation for the first time. I said, is it because someone finally showed you that it was literal and actually most of it had already been written in the Old Testament? And they go, yep. 
Let me tell you, it'll help you to understand that when David says, on your law, I meditate day and night, he had the Old Testament. He didn't even have all of the Old Testament at the time. Don't just get stuck reading the new, thinking that's the part you'll understand. The whole book, Genesis to Revelation, is one cohesive unit. The same God is the same God yesterday, today, and forever, and he wrote the old and he wrote the new. Go to Psalm 59. Look at verses 1 through 8. Psalm 59, verses 1 through 8. It says, Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord, and for no fault of mine, they run and make ready. Awake, come to meet me and see. You, Lord, God of hosts, are God of Israel. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling around about the city. They are, they are, there they are bellowing with their mouths with swords in their lips. For who they think, they think, for who they think will hear us. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. Anybody see where we are? Yep, you got it. And it's also in uh, verse 17. We'll go to one more. Let's go to one more. Go to Psalm 36. Look at just verse 1. It says, Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. You see it. Very good. 18. Now, go back with me to Romans chapter 3 and look at verse 17. Romans chapter 3, verse 17. It says, the way of peace they have not known. Now, I want to stop for a second and let you meditate on this with me for a second. If you read it and let it to sink in a little bit, you'll notice that Paul's writing this like they should have known what the way of peace was. You see what I'm saying? The way of peace they have not known. In other words, it's almost like they should have known what the way of peace was. They just didn't get it. It had been revealed. And I'm going to show you it was. Go to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 67 through 79. This is Mary's Magnificat. Actually, not Mary's. This is uh, Zechariah's. Sorry, Zechariah's praise to the Lord. Luke 1, verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us. 
in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, be, we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sun, sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into what? The way of peace. So again, there's that phrase again, the way of peace. The way of peace they have not known. And when Zechariah's tongue is finally loosed at his son's birth, he gets through the Holy Spirit, starts to just praise God and quote a lot of Old Testament passages we're not going to break down tonight for you. And he ends it with the way of peace. You're going to guide us into the way of peace. Go to Luke chapter 2. Look at verses 8 through 14. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel, the Lord, appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So Zechariah praises God and said, you've provided this child now that's going to be the prophet of the Messiah. And that Messiah is going to guide us into the way of peace. The angels come when Jesus is born and say, peace is now available to all with whom God is pleased. Paul quotes and says in Romans 3, 17, quoting from somewhere where I'm going to show you in a second it is, and how the way of peace they have not known. Go with me, with, with me back to Isaiah chapter 59. Isaiah 59 is where this way of peace was mentioned. Isaiah 59 verses 1 through 8. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your inquiries, or sorry, not inquiries, iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are the thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. 
So here in this indictment of the nation of Israel and the wickedness of man, we see a lot of the places that Paul was quoting from again here as well in Romans 3. As he's been laying out the wickedness of man, Jew and Gentile, this is the heart of everyone. The Roman, uh, sorry, Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. All of us, if we're honest, we all have this problem. We all have this within us. And even though we're saved, and those of us who have been born again and been sealed by the Spirit of God, you know you and I still wrestle with our flesh wanting to be like this. But by God's grace, we're hopefully learning to have victory by yielding to Him on a daily basis. But he talks about this way of peace they don't know. And then Zechariah comes, and through the Holy Spirit, he says, this child, we know him as John the Baptist, is going to prepare the way for the one who's going to come, and he's going to guide them into the way of peace. And then the angels come and announce at the birth of Jesus, because of this one who has been born, this Savior, there's peace on earth to all men on whom his favor rests. What is the way of peace? Who is the way of peace? Jesus. Go to Romans chapter 5. Go to Romans chapter 5. Look at verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, and that literally means declared as if we've never sinned. That's what justified means. We are that righteous. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Then he goes on and says, that's why we can rejoice in our suffering. We praise him for the glory of the heaven that's coming. We can also rejoice in our suffering because we know that God has already proven that he loves us. He's already given us salvation. And if he's allowed us to go through suffering, he has a good purpose for it. But again, folks, I hope you understand this. There's not many ways to God. There's only one. And that's through faith alone in what Jesus has done through his sinless life, through his death on the cross, through his resurrection from the dead. And salvation is only given, remember, peace is available to everyone on whom his favor rests. Who does this favor rest, favor rest on? Those who believe. And all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you look for any other way, you got a problem. Well, I don't think I'm that bad of a person. Do we have to go back through all those passages and Psalms again? Do we have to go back? No, we got a problem. The law and the prophets all showed the sinful condition of man. It was clear and it was everywhere. And to be honest with you, I've been nice to you. I've only shown you a small portion. But not only did the law speak of man's sinful condition, it also supernaturally charged men and women up to sin more. Go back to Romans chapter 3 as we wrap up tonight in the section that we've been in. Look at verse 19. And verse 20, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be, may be held accountable to God. So is Paul talking about the written law as in the Leviticus and Psalms and all that? No, he can't be. Remember, he's already laid out in chapter one and chapter two that those Gentiles who didn't have the written law of God, he wrote his law in their hearts. Remember that? So he's talking about the law of God, which has been revealed, not just in the written word, but in our consciences and in the moral law that he's put within each of us that we've all gone against. He says, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, which is the whole world, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. By the way, you want further proof of man's desire to condemn God and justify themselves? Well, I don't want to believe in a God that would send people to hell. 
I'm a good person. You understand what I'm saying? We want God to be wrong so that we can be right. We want to justify our own actions and say it's okay. And in doing so, we condemn God. There's going to be a day, folks, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. I'm just going to tell you now, beat the rush. Beat the rush. I had the privilege of going to the Florida State uh, against Louisville basketball game Saturday night. I was up in the Panhandle area preaching this weekend and met with some pastors all up in that area. And one of the pastors I met with is a buddy of mine. He used to be pastor down here in Florida. He's now pastor in Georgia. And since I was in that area, we met and we played golf. He introduced me to a pastor buddy of his. Then we went to dinner and he had been given tickets to the Florida State basketball game against Louisville. And they were great seats. The game, though, didn't start till eight o'clock at night. And I'm going to be preaching the next day in Lake City, an hour and a half away. And I knew that by the time the game was over, I wasn't going to get back to the hotel till midnight or after. And then on top of that, if you ever been to a big venue where there's a lot of people parking, getting out's not a lot of fun. So we left at halftime. Florida State was winning. They ended up winning the game, which was good. But like, but like two old men, we were like, let's go. Let's beat the rush. We were the first ones out. Beat the rush. Bow your knee to God tonight. Surrender to the fact that he's God. Let God be true. Every man were a liar. Believe what he says. Stop trying to condemn him to justify yourself. And on top of that, look what verse 20 says. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Not just it revealed it and told us. That's a part of it. You've already heard. You've already seen. God's shown you. But look at Romans chapter 5 again, verse 20, where we read earlier and I said we'll come back to it. Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Here's something here that may surprise some of you if you've not seen it before. It says, now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, the grace abounded all the more. There's not so much sin that God can't cover. But listen closely. The law came in to increase the trespass. I've asked people for years, does God want lost people to sin more or sin less? The answer is more. Until they come get saved, then he wants them to get sin less. Because Christians, he wants us to have the power of Christ within us. And say, no, that's why John says in 1 John chapter 2, My little children, I write to you that you don't sin. But if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. But his desire is that we not sin once we're saved. But before we're, before we're saved, God wants us to sin to the point that we realize we got a problem. That's why he tells in Revelation chapter 3, the church in Laodicea, I wish you were cold or you were hot. But since you're lukewarm, you don't think you got a problem. If you're cold, you know you're cold. You're hot, you know you're where you belong. But since you're lukewarm, you think you're okay and you're not. God wants the lost world to sin more. And how he does that is he gives the law. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Look at verses 56 and 57. In a passage we love to read at Easter time, but look at verse, chapter 15, verses 56 and 57. It says, The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's deal with that. The power of sin is the law. What may help you in is this. Uh, 
the power of sin is gas, is, or the, the law is gasoline to a motor, if you will. What makes the motor run? Gas. Of course, the, fire, the spark and the, the air and all that kind of stuff, the combustion. But what fuels the motor is gas. That's the power of the motor. You know what the power of sin is? The law. I'll explain that to you. Go to, go to Romans chapter 7. Exactly. That's where Paul's going to go in Romans 7. Like I told you, we could study the book of Romans and not look anywhere else but Romans. He deals with everything here. Romans 7, look at verses 7 through 13. Paul says, Then what shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I wouldn't have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? Here we see it again. By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Paul says, I didn't even know what coveting was till the law said don't covet, and then everything in me wanted to covet. The whole world is accountable to God. He's revealed that to them, whether they've got his written word or his revealed law in their hearts. Everyone knows there's a God. There's no one without excuse. We already dealt with that in chapter one. Everybody knows. He's revealed it through creation in many other ways. And on top of that, even though the Jews have an advantage because they had more revealed to them, with that advantage comes a lot more responsibility. But at the same time, everyone's guilty, Jew and Gentile alike. And the law was not only brought to reveal our sin, but to fuel it so that it would manifest itself even more and we'd deal with it. That's why it's always been weird to me that parents would think that they could control their teenagers by setting more rules. You ever notice the more rules you set your teenagers, the more they snuck out, the more they came home late, the more they did the things you didn't want them to do? We even think in our churches, we make some more, enough rules, everybody will behave themselves. Law, rules aren't going to make people behave more. It's just going to fuel our nature to sin. But we have victory, and we're going to deal with that over the next few weeks as we really break down the rest of the gospel here. Let me read to you Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 24, as a setup for where we're going next week. Romans chapter 3, verses 23, 21 through 24. Paul just said, the more we try to keep the law, the more we fail. Does that sound familiar? But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. I can't wait to show you that next week. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He's just laid out that the law has shown that everybody's guilty. And he's also said that the law makes us sin more. But there's good news. 
God's plan all along was that never we would be made righteous through the law. Just through the law come, real, come the realization of our sin. And all along, he's had a plan from before the beginning of the world to take care of this sin problem through the one that he's chosen. And he's given promises about him all the way through, even way back to Genesis chapter 3. And he's even used others to reveal that he was coming and to give more insight. And the prophets and the law were talking about him. And then John the Baptist came on the scene. And then who was born? The one who would guide us to peace. Now, I know that I'm talking to mostly Christians. You're all here on a Tuesday night coming together in the middle of COVID to come study the Word of God. I love it. There are those of you that are watching online, and many of you probably are believers. If you're not a believer, I pray through this message tonight, the Spirit of God's opened your heart, and you respond in faith. I want to encourage you as believers as we go into where we're going in the chapters to come. Paul will really start to speak to you now, too, to help you in what it really means to walk in the newness of life. What it really means to be led of the Spirit, under the control of the Holy Spirit that lives within us. Actually experiencing this new life. Remember how we read, we read earlier that we might walk in newness of life? I can't wait to show you how the gospel deals with that too. The gospel is not just how to be saved. The gospel is how to live on a daily basis. I don't just got good news that you can be saved of your sins and go to heaven. I got good news. You can actually live in the power of the Spirit and say no to sin and let people see Jesus in you without you even trying. That we'll deal with later on when we come back. Till then, I love you. We'll see you then. Thanks for coming.